Welcome to McKinsey on Government. Each episode examines one of the hardest problems facing government today and solutions from McKinsey experts and other leaders. I'm the host of McKinsey on Government, Francis Rose. A flurry of activity from the White House is driving conversation around transformation at agencies across government. The pandemic's driving some of that conversation, but not all of it. That's the subject of today's episode, Government Transformation in Times of Extraordinary Change, Key Considerations for Public Sector Leaders. Brooke Weddle's a partner in the McKinsey office in Washington, D.C. Scott Blackburn is a senior partner in the D.C. office of McKinsey. Welcome to both of you. Scott, I want to start with you. We have so many moving parts right now regarding transformation, presence management, agenda vision, and lots of other things out there. How do you think a leader in government should start to think about all of these pieces and put them into a mosaic rather than just puzzle pieces laying on the table? Welcome, Scott. Great. Well, thank you, Francis. And uh, it is quite an exciting time right now. You have the the Build Back Better agenda uh, just recently uh, released President's Management Agenda, uh, an executive order uh, signed on um, customer experience. Uh, it's a lot. It's it's an absolute lot. And it's a lot for uh, an agency when you also add in sustainability goals, inclusion goals um, to be able to to um, to structure. And I think that what makes, uh, you know, setting up kind of a, a clear aspiration, a clear performance agenda, a clear cultural agenda as well for for every single organization uh, to be kind of imperative right now. And I think often the the first year of an administration, Francis, is is, um, so often set to be the getting the people in place, getting the the policy agenda in place, getting that guidance out there. It really is time for for every agency to to buckle up and and, uh, start getting organized and figure out how they're actually going to implement everything. Brooke, welcome. You were nodding your head quite vigorously for those who are not able to look at their phones and and see you on the Zoom call. When Scott talked about cultural issues, why'd that resonate with you so much? And how does the culture concept fit into what you've seen private sector organizations do regarding these transformations? Yeah, well, I often agree with Scott, but that that did resonate hugely with me. Um, on the in the private sector, we're seeing very many of the same trends. So, on culture specifically, since you asked, we see a lot of organizations, I would say, reinventing or at least reexamining what their culture stands for. And we've done research using our organizational health index to pinpoint what are some of the management practices or the behaviors that have really been the hallmarks of high-performing companies during the pandemic. And not surprisingly, some of those management practices have to do with innovation, you know, driving for creativity, entrepreneurship, because we've had to seek out new solutions to new problems. Um, But you also see organizations um, really emphasizing things like process-based capabilities and ensuring that they're creating a strong execution engine. So it's all this new ideas and, and creativity gets you know, put into the, the system, if you will, there's a, a process by which you can lock it in, in more sustainable ways. And so many organizations are, you know, rethinking how can they do that at scale? What's the role of leaders in particular in role modeling those new behaviors? So um, absolutely, it's, it's, been a, it's been a healthy time for, for rethinking culture. When you look at that research, Brooke, 
at what how organizations have looked at transformation in the pandemic era. How does that benchmark against what you saw before the pandemic? How much has the pandemic changed the way that people think about how they want to structure or restructure their organizations and the way they do business? Yeah. Well, interestingly, in an, in a kind of a, a different research effort, but an adjacent one, um, we look at transformation rates, the success rates of transformations every five years. And it just so happens that last year was the, the fifth year in the cycle. And so we did the research. And it turns out that we still are stuck at a 30% success rate for transformation. So the number didn't move neither up nor down during the, the pandemic. The thing that we found, though, was that organizations are investing in new techniques to try to drive success. So the one that really stood out to me and was exciting was around the role of influencers. So people in the organization who have influence, not by hierarchy, but because of you know, how effective they are at communicating or how trustworthy they are. And we saw that organizations that had the higher levels of success and transformations were really investing much more in these influencers. And I connect that back to culture because we've also seen social networks as the fabric of an organization, organization's culture really change. Um, and, and I'll just give you one more piece of insight here. In another piece of research, we saw that weak ties are becoming weaker and strong ties becoming stronger. If you think about that, it really has an impact on how work gets done, right? If I'm not interacting with people who are kind of more arm's length and I'm, I'm interacting more with people who are close to me, I might not get different pieces of information that I would have previously. So it's, it, the landscape's really changing. Scott, uh, government leaders would kill some of them probably for a 30% success rate on transformation. What's different about the work that Brooke does and what she sees in the private sector and what you see both in the public sector and now that you're on the outside working with uh, public sector leaders? Yeah, uh, Francis, we did. Um, we actually did a, a government cut, a separate piece of research. And uh, in government, it, it's closer to 20%. Uh, that are successful versus 30%. And, and even that might be a bit charitable. Uh, it is tough in, in government. Um, you, I think you have all the, the challenges that you have in, in private sector. But if you think about it, you also have uh, leadership rotating in and out um, for, for you know, political administrations or, or whatever it, it might be. There, there's, uh, there are larger organizations, typically. There, there is a lot of bureaucracy. You have a lot of different stakeholders, um, you don't necessarily have the, the same incentives uh, that you, you have uh, in, the, in, the, in the private sector, right? Where people are very focused on stock price and bottom line and quarterly targets, uh, et cetera, is a, typically a, a forcing mechanism. Uh, what I would say, though, in the, in the public sector is you have mission, right? You have people who deeply, deeply care. And I think that's the secret weapon. And I think that's actually something that people in the private sector can learn from, from public sector. Um, and whether it was my experience in, in VA, where um, you know, we said as a North Star uh, that we're going to improve veteran trust uh, in, um, in the VA, that it can fulfill its na the nation's commitment to, to veterans. Um, I think that became kind of a galvanizing type of force that all of our employees believed in. And at the end of the day, they might have some different differences on, on how to actually get there. But if you use that as a North Star, you appeal to people's mission in government. Uh, I think that's a, a, a tool that um, could be used more in the private sector. 
What moves the ball, Scott? And I'm, Brooke, I want to ask you this too, but that 30% doesn't sound great. It doesn't sound like a success. And I wonder what moves the ball. In, I and mean, we can talk about theory and, and ideas and all of that. That's great. But in actual execution, Scott, I'll start with you. What moves the ball? How do we get that to a, a better number? And how do we get the outcomes to be better? Yeah, it, it can be a lot better. Right. And I, I do think um, having a structured plan, I think, number one, having a, um, a, a compelling aspiration that people uh, believe in and is actually crystal clear uh, is is like step number one. I think step number two is is actually doing the work and, um, uh, you know, understanding kind of where you are, what are the challenges in the organization? And then step three, developing that plan to overcome those those barriers, right? And and that's both the what we need to do to get to the the aspirational goals that we set forward. So what is that performance agenda? But then also uh, what is the um, uh, what what are those those organizational health goals? What are those cultural changes? And being very very deliberate about that. And then as Brooke just mentioned, is setting up that execution uh, uh, um, engine. To actually get there and be very disciplined, and um, uh, you know, hold your people accountable, but also um, uh, overcome barriers when they're inevitably thrown your way. Um, but I, I think what we found is that you can flip the odds, right? Um, you can get from thirty percent to say seventy percent um, if you actually follow a structured approach and and uh, you, you do everything the the way it could be done. Define the term, Scott, that you just used, organizational health. What does that mean, and how does one go about assessing it, measuring it? Yeah. Well, I think the best analogy uh, that I have uh, with, with health is, um, uh, you know, if you think about an athlete, right, uh, you think about going and, and winning a race, uh, you know, winning a championship in a certain year. I think that is kind of your, your performance. But what is what are you doing to be able to kind of sustain that over a long period of time, right? Uh, you're taking care of your body. You're taking care of your mind. You're, uh, if it's a team sport, you're uh, replenishing your talent. You're creating that culture that needs to kind of uh, compete for the championship over and over again uh, is kind of the best analogy that I could use. And, and Brooke, I think uh, I've heard you explain this uh, probably better many times. No, I, I think that that analogy is really helpful for understanding it, uh, the concept. And, and we've been doing research on this concept, organizational health, for 20 plus years. And the impetus behind the research was trying to determine what set organizations that performed well for long periods of time from those that were more of a, a blip on the radar, if you will. And the big insight from this research was that organizations that place equal emphasis on organizational health, as Scott's talking about, as they do performance, those are the ones that actually have the long-term sustainable performance. And um, just to build on what Scott said in terms of the definition, we think of organizational health as three things. One is how well an organization aligns around a strategy and its vision and translates that into the work environment all the way down to the front line Two, how well it executes against that strategy and vision, you know, and, and here you're, you're, you're taking into account things like, do you have the right skills, talent, capabilities? Do you have the right accountability mechanisms? Are you motivating your people, right? All that is part of execution. And then the third element is renewal. 
And renewal is, do you have capacity to look outside to capture new ideas and competitive insights? And do you have an internal innovation engine to, 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 to take in new ideas from inside your organization, through knowledge sharing, through bottom-up innovation? That's how we think about organizational health. So would the measure of, of failure or the, the things to be wary of to prevent failure be the opposite of those three things, Brooke, or would it be also some, so I'm going to paraphrase, Scott, what, what you just were talking about. A concise statement of mission is the yeah. first step. And then a strategy to get the work done that's required to fulfill that is step number two. And yep. so would then the things to be wary of for, uh, to avoid failure, be kind of the reverse of those two things, some combination of those things, Brooke, or, or something else? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the idea is that for every kind of step in terms of your transformation journey, and as Scott was talking about our research on flipping the odds, right? So 30% is a terrible number. So let's not be content with that, right? So this, this approach is designed to flip those odds at every step along that journey, you need to be concerned with what you're doing on the performance side and setting an aspiration you know, with respect to performance, measuring your starting point, right? coming up with the, the portfolio of initiatives, but then doing the same exact thing on the health side. And it's got to be balanced throughout those different steps. Um, and, it, and, and the other thing I'd mentioned too is you know, we've done um, thinking more recently too as part of that journey on the role of talent. Talent's on everyone's minds these days with the great resignation, the great attrition. And one thing that we've found that's critical in terms of flipping the odds is ensuring that you are matching the best talent to the critical roles in the transformation in a really strategic way. So not, you know, I know Beth, Beth's great, I'm going to put her in this role, but like, let's think actually really strategically about the jobs to be done for a role, the attributes, the experience, the, you know, the, the skills that that role requires and then think through in a, in a fact-based way, what's the best talent? We see more organizations doing this, but it's still not the majority in my view. Brooke, did your research give you any indication why that 30% number doesn't move over time? Well, I think transformations are hard. I, th I think, you know, that would be my, my starting point. I think um, the other thing I'd say is transformations require you to do a lot of things at the same time, which is why you need to follow a structured approach that is comprehensive, but it's also why you need to seek out ways to get leverage from the broader organization, the role of influencers, right? Matching talent to the right roles. What Scott talked about in terms of the change story, the change story is about clarity of focus, but then it's also about building the narrative organization-wide. So it's not the small collection of leaders who, who know what we're doing, right? And so I think inherently they're hard, but I, I, I think there's a lot that needs to happen. And in some cases, leaders underestimate that or they underestimate or overestimate their ability to do it themselves without the broader change network, if you will. Scott, is there such a thing as a transformational playbook or framework that leaders can put the peculiarities of their organizations around, you know, fill in the meat on the bones? Or does each one of these require the basics that you and Brooke have both talked about today, but then kind of starting on a fresh sheet of paper? That's a great question. I, I think there are frameworks. Uh, there's been a lot written about uh, transformations in the past, uh, going all the way back to John Cotter's famous book. We, of course, have our own. But I, I think 
a little bit of what uh, Brooke said is, is transformation is hard, right? So it's, it's something that's easy to put on paper or could be easy to put on paper. And there is benefit from getting it on paper, getting the clarity of mission, getting that structure in place. Here are the, the five themes that we're going to get to get the aspiration. Here's the, the 20 initiatives. Here are the metrics that we need to, uh, to, to put in place. All of that, is, there's tremendous benefit from that. And I think that there is kind of structures and frameworks to go do it. But um, uh, it also, it, it, it takes a, uh, a lot of energy over uh, typically periods of years. This isn't something that happens in months. It, it happens over years. And often in government, it happens uh, across administrations, right? And um, so I, I think the, the, the difference sometimes between the ones that are successful across administrations and government versus the ones that aren't are really the ones in which um, you you win over the the people right uh, people are get excited uh, about uh, you know the change that is going on the vision that is that is laid out um, and uh, you create more positive energy than negative energy that you exhume through the the hard work that everybody has to put in. Um, and I'll take kind of the, the customer experience journey as a, as a good example of, of that, that's something that has, uh, you know, happened during administrations. And, um, you know, we started planting the seeds of that, um, you know, under Secretary McDonald in, uh, you know, 2015, 2016 uh, with the, the VA transformation. And you've seen it now uh, two administrations later uh, just have uh, incredible um, momentum, right, through uh, you, you know, the, the last administration and the executive order that was just, just signed, which is great. And, and that was because uh, it, it, the people bought into it, people uh, uh, have kept with it. And um, as a result of that, like a lot of positive change is actually happening in government. Uh, I want to get Brooke's input on this question, but I think it's something that's more peculiar to public sector organizations. So Scott, I'll ask you first, is there a way to make that transition that happens so often in government changes of administration, changes of political leadership and so on into a feature for a transformation, not a bug, because it seems like it's a bug almost all the time. Yeah, I, I, I think it. I think it can, and I think there has been, um, you know, some great examples of that uh, in the past. The FBI transformation post nine eleven was a great uh, example that has, uh, you know, uh, going back to the IRS transformation with Charles Rosati, I think was another, you know, famous uh, success story as as well. And um, so I think there are kind of lessons learned uh, in going back and understanding what went right in those situations. What went right in some of the private sector uh, transformations that, that have been uh, successful and starting to kind of like create that process, create that engine. Um, what are the, the traits of successful transformations, which are pretty well documented, right? And just making sure that we're not repeating the mistakes of the, of the past. And we're constantly creating that um, that leadership engine, that execution engine, that renewal engine that Brooke was talking about before, so that we're creating uh, creating successes and building off of successes and then handing it over to the next teams as people rotate out or as career employees move on to get promoted and move on to other jobs or leave agencies. Um, I, I do think that the... the um, we could have tremendous success in government if we do that. Brooke, I think there's a perception that the private sector doesn't deal with the same kind of leadership churn or handoffs that the public sector does. Is that the case? 
And whether it is or isn't, how do they manage those kinds of leadership changes, handoffs, and so on when they do occur? Yeah. Well, I I think the cycles are probably different, but the problem still exists or or the challenge. And I think really critical, as as Scott is saying, to try to create some of the, the hard wiring, right, that is persistent. And then you're not, you know, of course, starting from scratch. But there's another element to, the, to this as well, which is the narrative. And the narrative, you know, even when there's a leadership change and a new leader comes in and wants to make her mark or his mark, I think it's helpful to have some continuity in that narrative. And organizations that do this really well, having continuity, have a really strong sense of values and purpose because they're not wholesale making it up right with each transition but rather it's a build and so and we've seen you know an, a, a very much an uptick in the private sector on the importance of purpose and meaning and and I think we're going to see more of this and I, I do think it will help with transitions and transformation as we go forward I mean one you know piece of research we saw in the great attrition was that there's this complete disconnect between what employers think is the reason for employees leaving and what employees are stating as their reason. And it comes down to meaning and belonging. So I, I hope we see more of that in the private sector. And I think that will help with some of the continuity around leadership transition. Uh, final thought, what does meaning and belonging look like in a hybrid work environment moving forward? Because all of these transformations, it looks like, are going to happen, public sector and private sector, in some form of hybrid work environment, and nobody knows exactly what. It'll be different from organization to organization. Brooke, what do you see right now, or is there even a way to see right now what that looks like? Yeah, gosh, I love that question. I was just on with a group of chief diversity officers last night, and this was the question. How do you create meaning and belonging in a hybrid workplace? And I think, first and foremost, one thing that is happening is leaders are doing a lot of their own self-reflection on ways in which they need to change and show up differently because so much of meaning and belonging is cultivated in those micro moments, micro moments that matter. And so, you know, without resorting to just your default preferences on whether or not you want to be in the office, whether you what not you want to work synchronously versus asynchronously, we got to all start as a starting point in understanding our own biases and preferences and how that might impact others. The other thing I see organizations doing to try to cultivate more meaning and belonging and work in hybrid workplaces is investing in the capability building of managers. It is, it's a whole new world when you, you know, ask a manager to reflect on how to structure work in a way that, first of all, is hybrid, and second of all, that helps to create more of a, a sense of belonging so that you know, we can start to decrease some of these record level um, levels of burnout that we're seeing. And so I, I think we shouldn't assume that managers know how to do that. And so in some cases, organizations are creating new roles in the organization, the future of work, right? The future of workplace. That might not be for everyone, but it underscores the importance that organizations are placing on, on investing in this in this strategy of the workplace of the future and specifically the manager level, you know, the middle manager ranks and really making that happen. Scott, I think the challenge for uh, federal leaders, uh, public sector leaders, when it comes to meaning and belonging, as, as Brooke referred to, is 
how do you create that in an environment where there are so many people eligible to retire, where if they don't feel like there's meaning and belonging, they're able to just say, see you later and move on to something else. That strikes me as the, as the biggest issue that public sector leaders have to deal with. It, it is a big issue, Francis. And, and um, I, I do think this is where creating that compelling vision of where you're going and why people should actually stick with it, whether it's uh, you know, pushing out their retirement and thinking about the last act that we could uh, potentially give uh, the next generation, or it's um, some of the up and comers that are kind of weighing options between whether I stay in the government or whether I, I move, uh, you know, over to the private sector. I think this this meaning and belonging is so critical, and and you know that the government has the advantage. A lot of these agencies have the advantage, whether it's strengthening our economy or preserving the environment or defense and security or healthcare or serving our citizens to really lay out that compelling vision and energize people of, hey, this is where you want to be, where you can actually make a difference on your on your families, on, on your loved ones, on kind of the world overall, and uh, come be a part of it, right? And here is what we're going to do over the next you know, two, three, five years and get concrete for them and excite people to, to want to be part of it, to want to kind of put in the, the extra energy um, so that, you know, when their career is over, they can look back and say, this was a highlight. I was part of something special. And back in 2022, when we're coming out of the COVID crisis and we had all these commercials, I was actually this is what I did. It gets back to like the George Patton quote of during World War II uh, of uh, that I, I probably can't say on air. But uh, <laughs> where were you uh, during that time where the world needed you the most? And uh, I do think we are at a certain inflection point where um, there's going to be a lot of people that should want to be part of it. Scott Blackburn, Brooke Weddle, a terrific conversation. Thanks very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Francis. Great. Thank you. You've been listening to McKinsey on Government, a presentation of McKinsey and Company. Our next episode's in a couple of weeks. You can subscribe to McKinsey on Government everywhere you get your shows. I'm the host of McKinsey on Government, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening. Music.